This podcast episode from Oncology Data Advisor was recorded live at the 2023 American Society of Hematology Annual Meeting in San Diego. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit oncdata.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on social media for more exclusive content and interviews from the meeting. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. We're here at the ASH Annual Meeting with Dr. David Andorsky. Thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to introduce yourself and your research interest? Sure. I am a clinical uh, hematologist and medical oncologist at the Rocky Mountain Cancer Center in Boulder, Colorado, which is a U.S. oncology practice. Uh, I've been with the group for 13 years. Uh, I'm also very involved in hematology research, particularly uh, in lymphoma, uh, and I sit on the Saracana Research Institute Lymphoma Executive Research Committee. Awesome. Thank you for that. And uh, to start, could you give us, um, or I wanted to ask you, how has the treatment landscape of CLL slash SLL shifted with the introduction of BTK inhibitors? Well, I think it's made a huge difference. I mean, I was just preparing a talk uh, a few months ago to give some, to some primary care doctors, and I was updating some slides that I had from 2019. <clears throat> and I looked at my slide that I had on guidelines for first-line therapy, and I literally had to cross every single line out and put something else in. Um, it's really changed a lot. You know, when I was a fellow, um, we were giving a lot of um, chemotherapy, a lot of high-dose steroids and rituximab. Um, by the time I joined the practice, we were giving a lot of FCR and venomous and rituximab, which were very effective therapies, but had a lot of toxicity, including some late toxicity. Um, and then the BTK inhibitors and venetoclax came onto the scene, and things have really changed a lot. Uh, now I can sit down with a patient and say, um, you've got this condition, we've got to treat it, but it's incredibly uh, effective, the treatments. They have very few side effects for most people, and this is something that we hope that you're going to live with and not, and not die from. Right. And um, for the study that you're presenting with your abstract, what could you give us a brief overview of the study and the results you presented? Sure. So this is a real-world medicine study of a large cohort of patients with CLSOL in the U.S. oncology practices. Uh, we just are beginning to look at treatment patterns and also social determinants of health, which has become kind of a hot topic in medical research. Um, so we used our, our electronic medical record to find about 2,000 patients who started on a BTK inhibitor during the index period. And we looked at, um, you know, did those patients switch to a different BTK inhibitor? Um, about 8% of patients switched. The major vast majority stayed on the same one they had started on. Um, we saw that over time, um, more of the second generation BTK inhibitors, acalbrutinib and then xanabrutinib, which was just approved uh, in January this year, um, have comprise a larger portion of the um, BTK usage, which you'd expect. Uh, and then we also looked at whether social determinants of health were correlated with which prescription, which medication patients were receiving. We looked at rural versus urban status. We looked at sort of people who lived in economically deprived areas, both on state and national level. And we also looked at payer mix, so Medicaid, Medicare, or commercial payers. Uh, we actually didn't find much in the way of associations, which I found to be reassuring, because it's just the patients are getting the care that they need, that their doctor thinks they need, regardless of where they happen to live or uh, who the payer is. Um, there was a statistically significant difference in prescriptions in rural versus urban. Interestingly, in the rural communities, um, rural zip codes, we had more patients getting second-generation BTK inhibitors than agrutinib. I'm not sure for the explanation for that. They were relatively small numbers only. I think 5 or 10% of the patients in the study were in a rural zip code. So we might want to look at that a little bit further. But that's kind of a summary of the findings. Gotcha. And um, it seems like you're touching a lot of, or 
Yeah, touching a lot of bases with this study, but were there any limitations that you experienced? So a major limitation of any real-world medicine is that it's all retrospective, um, and you're taking more of a bird's-eye view of the data and, and can't really get into detail with what's going on with an individual patient or patient cohort. So those are some sort of standard limitations of real-world medicine. Um, but in terms of the findings that we have, I, I think we feel pretty, pretty good about those. Definitely. And uh, does your team have plans to further evaluate this study or going into a further phase Yes, absolutely. Well, it's not really a, a trial. It's more of an, again, observational, what we call outcomes research. Um, so this is really just the first publication from this project. Um, we're looking at other things, such as those patients that did switch from one BTK inhibitor to another. Why did they switch? We're going to hopefully look at um, real-world evidence of um, progression-free survival or time to the next treatment, you know, endpoints to see how that stacks up with what we've seen in the clinical trial. And then, again, if there are any interactions with social determinants of health based on those parameters. Definitely. And then final question that I have for you is just kind of curiosity. Uh, why is it vital that studies like this are conducted to better understand uh, evolving treatment landscapes such as BTK and HIP? It's a great question. Um, I think the question is really kind of what's the, what's the function and value of real-world medicine in the research landscape. So we obviously depend on rigorously conducted clinical trials to study new agents, figure out how to get them approved, um, how do they work or not, and then hopefully lead to new advances in therapy. The difficulty is clinical trials are very controlled environments. You have patients that are highly motivated to find those trials and doctors that are highly motivated to put them on. Patients in clinical trials across the board in oncology tend to be um, younger, um, less diverse, um, and probably from higher socioeconomic status. Um, that last one I'm not 100% sure about, but my intuition is that, that that's likely the case. Um, and so the question is, once you get a drug out into the real world, where you have patients that are older, um, more diverse, maybe economically disadvantaged, um, and also being treated in much different environments than where clinical trials are conducted, you always want to wonder, want to know, um, can we reproduce the results of those studies or not? And are certain populations uh, not benefiting, right? In a, in a clinical trial, you're limited by the patients who walked in the door. If you want to know, you know patients in rural environments versus urban or economically deprived areas, you're really going to have to do this kind of real-world medicine to answer those types of questions. So I look at it as a real companion to the clinical trials um, to really see you know, how do these new treatments play out in the real world. Definitely. That's awesome. So thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for your research and your passion on this topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Endors. My pleasure. Good to be here.